The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I find the best people to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture are indeed farmers. And today I welcome back for part two of our interview, Mr. Klaus Martins. He began his farming career as a conventional grower in the 1970s. He and his partner, Mary Howell, began to transition their farm in the early 1990s to an organic system. They now farm 1,400 acres of certified organic crops and operate Lakeview Organic Grain, a certified organic feed and seed business. They are frequent speakers at conferences. They've written extensively on organic farming, and organic research is a strong component of their farming operation. They have conducted on-farm research independently and in cooperation with university researchers. So, Klaus, welcome back. It's my honor to have you again. Thank you. In part one, you described not only your history in farming and how you came back to your family farm with your college education and decided to do things differently. You also described how chemicals slowly but gradually wove their way into American farming culture with one herbicide failing, another one coming in to take its place, and so on. And before long, we have all of these chemicals You described your own personal experience with a toxic reaction where one side of your body became paralyzed after using a mix of chemicals, one of which included 2,4-D. I wanted to step back and ask a little bit about our earlier conversation having to do with your coming back to the farm. Your father had been farming without chemicals. You come back from your college education and you say, no, we're going to do it this way. We're going to have higher yields. What did your father think when you came back, started using these chemicals, and started seeing the fate of their demise or the negative reactions to the chemicals? My father was a remarkable person. and He he was older than a lot of fathers when I was born. And he had kind of had some of these experiences himself. And I remember him telling, he was very patient, and he encouraged me to try things. But I remember him telling us as his kids many times they told us these things were safe when they came out and they lied now we know they're toxic and i've been exposed to them and i'm likely to die from it someday and he was he must have had some kind of a feeling because in 1981 he had a massive uh, case of cancer and it was all through his body and he passed away just before his 69th birthday. Oh, he was a young so man. That, what's that? He was a relatively young man. Yes, he, he and he was strong and vigorous. You know, he'd left, led a good life. You know, there was no reason for him to be getting sick that we could see. And it really came back to me because I, I didn't believe him when he said, well, you know, that this stuff is going to kill me someday. What was he using, Klaus? Well, he had been using early insecticides. He was a dairy farmer, and they were encouraged to spray flies. Oh. And that was 
you know, at the time they were they were spraying these insecticides unprotected, and these things were this basically the same chemicals that were nerve gases used in the Second World War, mm-hmm. at least very similar to them. So that was that was a really bad experience for him. Obviously, or he wouldn't have brought it up so many times to us. But mm-hmm. the nice thing is that he let me learn the hard way. Yeah. But he did plant that lesson. Yeah. So you so, made. You made the transition to become an organic farmer, and I asked also, one of the struggles I think that a lot of farmers have is their relationships with their neighbors. So we know farmers, for example, who have organic farms, but their neighbors are spraying, and the spray is contaminating their farm, or if they're using genetically engineered crops, perhaps the pollen is contaminating their farm. But you mentioned that all of your 16 neighboring farms have all switched to organic. How did that happen? Well, the first couple of years that we were farming organically, I I would hear back from the coffee shop that people were taking bets on how long it would be before we went broke. (laughs) But after a little while, the people started noticing that our crops really looked better than they had before and that there was new equipment turning up and that our standard of living was improving and they would stop by and talk, and we discussed what we were doing and said there's lots of room for more people in this market. We're, uh, the, mar- the demand for organic crops is far outstripping the supply, and uh, we shared what we had learned with them, and nothing works like success. And you know, one by one, neighbors went from just asking questions to saying, well, I'd, I'd like to try that too. And at this point, we did a, it's kind of an unofficial count, but in our county, this county has the most organic land of any county in our state. It's one of the smallest counties. My guess is about 8% of the land being farmed is being farmed organically here. And it's it's transformed this area just to have more successful farms. At, at a time when farms were going out, farmers were losing their farms, prices were poor. We had quite a lot of prosperity. Now, of course, now there's a boom going on. and Some people are switching back to chemicals, but not in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, I often wonder, too, I don't think anybody's counting, but it would be interesting from a public health perspective to look at farmer health on organic farms versus farmer's health on farms where they're using chemicals. Because you know, there's a study in Iowa, I believe, that looked at farmer health, and there are certain cancers that are associated with the farming profession. And I can't imagine that cancer would be associated with being outside, I mean, other than perhaps skin cancer, but lymphoma is a cancer that's specifically related to certain farm chemicals, not the act of farming itself. So I'm very curious to know how farmer health compares in your county versus surrounding counties where there may be more chemicals used. Well, I I think... Of course, we also have an old order Mennonite community here, but in general, I think farmers are healthier than the than the rest of the population. Um, and I don't know, you know, there there are a lot of conventional farmers in this area too. But I I can give you an example, and that's the uh, our county is very diverse agriculturally, and we have a lot of grapes. And my doctor told me this was quite a few years ago that there are some very very rare cancers that are normally only found in one or two people in a hundred thousand that seem to be prevalent in this area and he felt that it had something to do with 
some of the unique chemicals that were being sprayed on grapes. And at that time, grapes were being sprayed with air blast sprayers. And if you can picture an air blast sprayer, it just creates a fog mm. and shoots it in all directions. Uh, since then, they've gotten much better technology and they're much more specific and directed as to how they're doing that. But it was really kind of sad when I was younger to have people I went to school with whose fathers and grandfathers were getting cancer that were in that business. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in this area, you know, this, this area seems to be a cell for certain types of these rare cancers. And we have the lakes and we have our wells. So there was a general feeling that there's something going on, but we really haven't seen the prevalence of the cancers here in the last 10 years that we were seeing before. Now, that may be also because the chemicals being used are changing. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things you told me in previous conversations was that, and I thought it was so brilliant, you said that we are all at risk from the chemicals in our environment. No one can escape what is in the water and the air all around us. So, you know, I think we take for granted that chemicals are sprayed and then we forget about them, but they are still in our environment. And even those chemicals that we're told, you know, they they break down quickly. I think that that's oftentimes another lie, too. And glyphosate is, you know, an example where I talk to soil scientists and they say, actually, we've been told that it breaks down quickly, but it doesn't. And now... We should probably talk a little bit about the GMO crops, which you yeah. you resisted, right? So let's talk yeah. about how GMO crops came to be, how you resisted using them, and what's happened as a consequence. Well, it was very easy for us to resist using them because we were already well underway to transitioning to organic when they became available. And I think we can easily understand why the, the adoption was so Wrong, especially for the herbicide resistant ones, and that's if you if you think back to my really long narrative on the last program about this development of resistance and how we started getting into a spot where we had to mix three and two and three and even four chemicals together because there were so many resistant weeds that you know, we had to make these really expensive cocktails in order to control all the weeds. Well, when glyphosate-resistant soybeans came on the market, soybean fields were kind of ugly sites, conventionally farmed ones, because there were so many weeds that were escaping the herbicides that were being put on. And glyphosate was is a non-selective herbicide. It kills basically everything it touches. And having found a gene that makes the, the soybean and then later corn, and I think there are quite a few other glyphosate-resistant crops now, mm-hmm. able to survive that, sort of reset the clock on this problem of evolving resistance. And what's remarkable to me is that it took as long as it has for glyphosate resistance to develop, but it certainly has developed, and we see places now where farmers are spraying their soybeans with glyphosate and then having to hire a crew to come in and hand weed and hold the fields because the the resistant weeds have come. But this is kind of a continuation of the story. Started with 2,4-D, went to the triazines, and then went into these more specific chemicals. And for each new material, there was were new weeds or new biotypes of old weeds that had evolved resistance. And now, 
after a short hiatus of being able to use these glyphosate-resistant crops, we're seeing a tremendous explosion of glyphosate-resistant weeds suddenly. And I think that's why we see 2,4-D coming on the market. Well, and I should just let our listeners know that the Union of Concerned Scientists report that came out December 11th of 2013 reports that these new resistant weeds are at 61 million acres and increasing rapidly. Wow. And that's that's back to uh, what I learned when we were converting to organic. When we create an environment and then create it the next year and then create it the next year after using the same herbicide glyphosate over and over and over, using the same production practices over and over and over, we're selecting very rapidly and very intensively for plants that are going to survive in that environment and and thrive in it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's only a matter of time when a biotype comes that can tolerate glyphosate before it will really become a dominant species in that field. I just need to take one break, class, just to remind our listeners that we are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and my guest is Klaus Martins, an organic farmer based in New York State, and we are talking about herbicide resistance and the move to organic farming, which would be the smart move, and the real danger that comes from introducing yet more resistant crops. And we had had a conversation, well, we've had many conversations because I have the pleasure of being on the Organic Farming Research Foundation board with you. But one of the things that you mentioned, and I totally agree with, is that the public largely does not understand that genetically modified crops are genetically modified largely to resist the spraying of herbicides. So... We hear messages that that we need these genetically modified crops to resist drought and to increase yield and to feed the world. And as you mentioned in the first part of this program, those are lies. And what we're really doing is increasing the sales of herbicides and increasing the profits of those who sell those herbicides and the related crops that go with them. And now, because of this resistance to glyphosate or Roundup Ready, Roundup specifically, we're now looking at a class of herbicide-resistant crops, new generation, that are going to be resistant to 2,4-D. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think this is a huge mistake, and I believe that even a lot of people in the biotech industry are have trepidation about this, because when glyphosate-resistant crops were first introduced, one of the reasons, and it was actually, I have to admit, it was one of the positive reasons, was that they got us away from these extremely toxic chemistries. Mm-hmm. And at the time, at least, glyphosate was believed to be a lot safer. And in terms of acute toxicity, there's no question it, it was a lot safer than those older, harder chemistries. But now that the resistance to glyphosate is breaking down and the weeds are suddenly uh, neutralizing its effectiveness, uh, going back to one of these old hard chemistries that had so many side effects and that was so dangerous is, to me, very foolish. Mm -hmm. And I should probably let our listeners know that the 2,4-D is, uh, there's a wonderful National Pesticide Information Center, and they specifically state that the 2,4-D herbicide 
There has been research showing that they have observed neurotoxicity, reproductive toxicity, and developmental toxicity, in other words, birth defects. And in some of the states where wheat is grown, where 2,4-D is already used, these new resistant crops would increase the use. We see more birth defects in those states where this particular herbicide is used more than in others. And with regard to glyphosate being safer than 2,4-D, I just want to mention that because so many more pounds are used, we have a technical fact sheet on glyphosate that says that in 1986, an estimated 6 million pounds of glyphosate was used in the United States. In recent years, 13 to 20 million acres were treated with 18.7 million pounds annually. So the residues on our food are increasing, and we have new data showing that it is actually classified as an endocrine disruptor, meaning it upsets our hormone systems. And we are finding, uh, for instance, there was a study last summer where they tested the urine of people who had not been eating crops from land that was treated with glyphosate. We're finding glyphosate in their bodies Mm -hmm. that was coming out in their urine. And there have been several times that the amount of allowable residue in our crops was raised by the, was increased by the EPA. I remember when it first came out, and incidentally, I was the first farmer in our county to use glyphosate mm-hmm. way back when it first came out. And we were warned sternly at the time, and it was on the label, not to spray crops. And there was a fairly long period before the crop was harvested that we had to observe. Uh, grapes couldn't be sprayed with it when there were leaves out. And you know, we've almost forgotten about those restrictions now because the, you know, it's being sprayed right onto the right onto the resistant crop, but it does have to result in more residue being in our food. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to, my old friend Charles Walders, who's passed on now, had a really clever way to describe the old test for toxicity, you know, the old LD50, which is, what that means is the lethal dose for 50% of subjects. He called that the make-it-to-the-door test. <laughs> and with the old hard chemistries, what they would do was take test subjects, probably mice or rats or, you know, whatever species they were using, and expose them and find out at what dose, dosage, 50% of a group would die. And that was the acute toxicity test. So as the way Charles Walders quipped, he said, well, that's the make it to the door test. 50% of them made it to the door, but nobody followed them afterwards and saw what happened to them. Mm. So some of these chemistries that today are fairly safe in terms of, quote, quote, unquote, in terms of acute toxicity. They don't kill anybody. But we need to look for a lot longer period and see what is the long-term effect that they have down the road. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the shifts. When we talk about hard chemistries, we saw a lot of the results a lot quicker. Uh, now, when we look at endocrine disruptors, you know, where does it stop? We've got you know, problems with amphibians. Uh, we've got changes in the soil that are very hard to measure and very hard to connect so that we we don't even really know what all the effects are or might be. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're sitting in a in a situation where USDA is getting safety data from the corporations that make these chemicals, and we're sitting in a very risky place because they are about to approve them. And if they are approved, we can expect 
many more acres to be sprayed with these chemicals. And I fear we will have crop loss and the, the crops that we'll lose will be things like grapes and tomatoes and vegetables that we know are health promoting. What do you think we should do, Klaus? Well, I know, I know what I, uh, what I believe we should do, and that's have much more diversity on our farms. One of the reasons that farmers are so dependent on a lot of expensive off-farm inputs is that we're growing bigger and bigger acreages of less and less different crops. You know, the vast majority of the corn central part of the United States, the corn belt, is either corn or soybeans. That's only two species. Yeah. And when we only have a few species, we're creating the perfect environment for some of the pests that uh, affect these crops to proliferate. And we're creating the need for materials to control them. Uh, I, I really feel people would be much healthier and our soil would be much healthier if we could shift our diets into something that was much more varied. And certainly our soils would be better off and would, and the farmers wouldn't have to buy as many inputs. Uh, for instance, I'll, I'll digress a little here. We had a problem on our farm growing dryable beans. Uh, everybody likes, not everybody, but a lot of people like kidney beans and black turtle soup beans. And in our area, the yields had been plummeting on these beans. And there was a root rot complex that would just, when they would come up, you'd get rain and the roots would rot off. And there were no chemicals that worked on it anymore. What we learned was because we had had a one-sided rotation, we were growing too many legumes in this case, that these diseases were building up in the soil. We found that when we added a brassica crop, now brassicas would be things like cabbage, broccoli, uh, we used yellow mustard as a cover crop and incorporated it. It reduced, uh, it actually devastated the diseases. And we doubled our yields on dry beans almost overnight just by bringing in one more species, one that gave a, a needed biological diversity to our farm. And that controlled the, the root rot complex. And what we found out afterwards, it was also controlling some pathogenic nematodes mm. that were part of the system. Now, this type of solution is really a lot better for the farmer and for the farm, but it's hard to get, we really need to get more university research so that uh, we can learn about these systems and learn what causes some of these problems and develop more holistic ways of dealing with them. And that's, that's another thing that we need to be doing is it seems like when, it, when the only tool you've got is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Right. And that, that's kind of the way it is with these pesticides. And maybe we need to take a step back and when we have a problem, ask the question of what did we do that created an environment where this problem had an advantage and was able to grow? And then how do we change what we did? How do we change this environment? Or where do we change the system in a way that will not make this be a problem? I thought it was interesting that you went back, you know, you were wise enough to go back in history and look at some of the older practices, and you've read a lot about the older soil scientists to see how this all comes together. And I do wonder, why is it that universities aren't teaching more of this and less of the high-tech chemical kind of farming? Well, it's really difficult to fund this kind of research unless there's a product coming from it that's producing an income stream. And I, I really think, I don't think there's anything sinister about it. I think uh, 
professors are going to study whatever they can get grant funds for. And that's part of the difficulty. And also, uh, if you look at young people going into college that are interested in the biological sciences, they are looking at where are their jobs. Well, those jobs are being offered in these fields, but there are relatively few jobs being offered in, in things like studying the ecology of insects. You know, there's, there's lots of lots of people looking for how do you kill them, but where do you get funding to pay for studying why do they grow and what makes them, you know, what makes them more successful and what kind of environments, how do environments affect which insects are there? There would need to be public funding for that. Yes, and that's that's the thing with public research and public funding and education. And I think we've created a vacuum. Our government has abdicated the responsibility for doing this public funding so that we're going into, we're heading in strange directions sometimes just because of where the money is. And we're abdicating some of the responsibility for doing balanced research for studying whole systems. Exactly. And, you know, speaking of whole systems, we just have a couple of minutes left, but in our conversations that we've had over the years, there's one thing that I think our listeners might really take home, and that is the connection between soil and human health. And we spoke a little bit about how ingesting these compounds, these residual herbicide and pesticide residues on our crops, how that might affect our own microbiome in our intestines, the the microbes, the similarities between the microbes in our guts and the microbes in our soil. And I want to ask a smart farmer that question. Well, when you think about it intuitively, if you eat from the garden, you're inoculating your body with what's in the soil. And I I think I've been surprised, but I shouldn't be at how much some of the microbes that are in our digestive tract mimic the ones that are in the soil. And it does raise some interesting questions about these biocides that attack, that kill things that are in the soil. What kind of effect are they having on the microbes that are inside our bodies? And we've learned that, you know, a human has probably, probably most of the cells in our bodies are not us. They're the microbes. Right. that coexist with us and that make us healthy or keep us healthy. And it, it is kind of scary to think that we may be ingesting things in our food in the form of residues that are having impacts on this. And recently we've learned about epigenetics, which is a really fascinating field. And we have to thank biotechnology for actually opening up a look into this. And this is the study of gene silencing and things that turn genes on and how stresses in the environment and other other influences can suddenly change the expression of certain genes and cause changes. And this is a very adaptive thing over many, many generations when you're adapting to a, a change in the environment. But it may not be so adaptive when it comes in species that we depend on for our health. Mm-hmm. Well, Klaus, you have given us a lot to think about in two programs, and I want to thank you very much for being my guest. 
In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank my guest, Klaus Martins of Lakeview Organic Grain. He is an organic farmer in upstate New York, and he is a frequent speaker at conferences. He's written extensively on organic farming. He's one of my best farmer friends to go to help understand the connection between food, health, and agriculture. So, Klaus, thank you so much for being my guest and sharing your wisdom with us. Well, thanks for having me. 